Ursula K. Le Guin dreams books, essentially, right? Like the creative dream makes them a reality and then they go out into the world and people read them and they begin to affect reality. And so in a way, like she kind of is or like she's dreaming these things. She doesn't have full control over them and like how they're going to be interpreted and how they're going to affect the world. Um, so the idea of this is like a, a, a metaphor for artistic expression, but also just in a broader sense, like you, like we all have the ability to affect reality and that we should be responsible with that power. Welcome, friends, to episode 270 of the Inked Film Podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss Ursula K. Le Guin's 1971 novel, The Lathe of Heaven. Here we are, James, with one of the uh, titans of science fiction fantasy that, honestly, uh, it's kind of embarrassing that I didn't know a lot about going into this. And we haven't tackled yet on the podcast, so it's cool to actually get into Someone like Ursula K. Le Guin, um, so beloved, you know, so well respected, um, it, such a impressive and honestly vast body of work that it's a little intimidating because I haven't read a lot of it. Now I feel like I need to read all of it. Um, I know I don't need to read all of it, but I feel like I need to read more because um, very interesting author and um, just learning about her as a person was really eye opening to me. Someone with deep roots in Portland, Oregon, which is where I live now. Um, so that was super interesting to me. Um, yeah, just excited to talk about her. Yeah, me too. I, you know, someone that I was aware of by reputation, hadn't wasn't super familiar with her work. I've seen the Ghibli film Tales from Earthsea. Mm. Oh, and yeah, okay. so like I kind of had some knowledge about her, but I, I've heard that that's not a perfect adaptation. I actually haven't seen it, so I, I can't really comment on it. I, my my understanding is that it, it isn't like a direct adaptation of any one Earthsea book, but some of the ideas behind Earthsea which is like one of her big series that she's known for. Yeah, Fantasy it's. Series. I mean, it was a cool world and I enjoyed it. I haven't seen it in years now, but I yeah. enjoyed it when I saw it. It wasn't necessarily my favorite Ghibli film, but, you know, I enjoyed it. And that was one where it was like, it wasn't Hao Miyazaki. It was... Yeah, his son Goro, I believe. Yeah, okay. And I'm happy now that I've read this. And, and this, you yeah. know, you mentioned Titan of sci-fi and fantasy and this story is what a blend of the two it is. You know, it's yeah. like this fantasy story that becomes very sci-fi and... It, but still has these these roots in, in fantasy and even just from the beginning, the jellyfish stuff that we start out with was yeah. so it was so I was so taken with that and I just knew right away that this is gonna have implication in the story that we were gonna get that was totally different, but definitely in keeping with that messaging. Like starting from the point of view of a jellyfish like floating on the sea, like it's it's so strange. She's she's known for being just very experimental and just pushing boundaries and doing things people weren't doing. Um, and, and not just, you know, in her form, but in her subject matter and her themes and, and her plot structures and her characters, like in, in so many ways, she was pushing boundaries and, and, and shaking things up. And that's, you know, that's a recipe for someone who's going to be remembered fondly, I think. Um, but of course it's, 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 uh, I actually watched this one hour documentary, um, which I'll, I'll see if I can link in the show notes for this, that really delved into her life and her, her work and, one of the things that they talked about was how like what happens to figures like her, they're so like controversial and they're pushing against, you know, uh, the status quo and 
they become sort of these like rebellious figures who um, are are sort of lightning rods, right? And then as they get older, what happens is they get sort of defanged and welcomed into the canon, and now all of a sudden literature like says, "Oh yeah, yeah, this they're you know they're." one of the our core authors and we always loved them and there's kind of like almost a rewriting of history of like yeah this is one of the great american authors and it's like no that's not how she was treated sure. throughout most of her career um it's just kind of like a thing you see time and again with a lot of authors especially the marginalized authors that probably has also something to do with the changing of the guard of generations like yeah it seems every generation before puts their nose up at certain stuff but younger audiences probably react not even young but like you know, young adults and people are probably responding to this and then become the people who are sort of deciding what's what is the core foundational, you know, stories of fantasy at that point. And, you know, they talk about it in this documentary, which I'm sure I'll be referencing a lot, but um, she wasn't comfortable with that. So, you know, in 2014, which was would end up being four years before her death, she was given uh, this award, the National Book Foundation's Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters, which is like one of the like biggest awards you can get as an author. And in fact, I, I think it was China Mielville was in the documentary saying that this is a welcome to the canon award. This is like, you know, you're you're now official. Um, and she used that platform to give this like speech that went viral that was highly critical of Amazon and a lot of its practices at the time um, and how it was, how Amazon um, was doing shady things to authors. And so she was like getting up there and and not being the like, you know, little old lady who's just happy to get her, you know, award and was instead like causing a stir. And it was a thing that went viral on the Internet. And like people were like, holy shit, look at her. Look at Le Guin out there. You know, she was like 84. It's awesome. And giving this speech about that. Yeah, it, it's awesome. We've all kind of come to the realization, I think, some people sooner than others that that some of these big corporations don't have our best interest at heart. And it's funny that like this story kind of draws parallels to a lot of you mentioned rewriting history as as a, like a, something that you mentioned with her past. And then and then, you know, big corporations that are big, 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 uh, you know, entities that are that are have power over others and stuff. Uh, that's maybe something that shows up in her work often. I don't know, but it, it definitely shows up here. Yeah, I think that's probably safe to say. Um, again, I'm not I'm no expert. I, I have read the uh, not the left hand of darkness. That's one I want to read. Actually, I read the tombs of Atawan, which is the second book in the Wizard of Earthsea series. Oh, cool. And I read it when I was at Seton Hill, and I, I, I get why it was assigned um, and not not the first book, but it was kind of a weird spot to be dropped in because Ursula K. Le Guin's writing, from the little bit I've read, it does seem like it is it is pretty dense. It asks a lot of you as an as a reader. Mm-hmm. It asks for a lot of patience. It asks for a lot of like like uh, careful attention to detail asks you to remember a lot, throws a lot at you. It also asks you to trust her, trust her. Like she, you're like, there's often mm-hmm. times that I was like, I don't really fully get what's happening here in this yeah. story. And then eventually the payoff would come and I, I, it would sort of connect the threads. That is true in the tombs of Atawan is, uh, you know, it's it, it, my memory of it is about this girl who like lives in these dark tombs and she's like being controlled by a religious sect and she has to like she's in the darkness and she's kind of a religious figure in a way and i don't remember exactly what happens in that book it's been a little while but it was one of those where i was like what is even going on here it's my first time as an introduction to this entire fantasy world right and i'm this is the angle that i'm entering in it's very strange 
this book, uh, yeah, we'll get more into it, but I, it also asks a lot of you. It throws a lot at you. Doesn't give you a lot to like hold on to early. Um, it takes a little bit for me before I was able to kind of figure out like what the story was and what we were getting into here. Totally, yeah. Um, and so there, a lot of that being said is like, I liked this book and I liked the Tombs of Atuan, um, but both of them I didn't love. And I would say I didn't love this book as much as I deeply respect it. Um, I it just like certain subjective things that don't like fit with like what I want in a book and like what I enjoy. And the, the, the process of reading it needs to be enjoyable for me to like really love a book. And sometimes I found the process of this to be just be a little difficult and a little um, like it kept me at arm's length and it wasn't like welcoming me in. A lot of that's by design, and I can recognize that and recognize its genius without, with, and still also admit that maybe it's not my favorite kind of thing. But I, I, I came away from this book and the last book, and like feeling like I want to read more. I know the dispossessed is um, supposed to be a book that is a utopian anarchist society, which sounds really cool. And she wrote it because she was like she hadn't seen anybody do that. And so she wanted to design a society that was uh, utopian, but built built upon, um, I think, a nonviolent anarchist political system. That sounds cool to me. Which is like, yeah. holy shit. You know what I mean? Like, okay, I'm interested to hear that. Um, and then, like, yeah, The Left Hand of Darkness is famous for, um, I, I'm not sure if it's all characters or just, like, a lot of characters who are androgynous. And it explores androgyny in a way that hadn't been done before. Uh, characters... Uh, I think switch between genders at different points in time to where they can be both mothers and fathers at different points in their life. And um, the uh, whole idea of sexuality and gender is completely sort of broken apart and analyzed in a way that when it came out was super groundbreaking. Nowadays we hear that and we're like, yeah, a lot of authors are playing with gender and stuff. But like when this came out, this was not a thing that people were doing and it caused a big uproar. And, and it was one of those books that everyone was talking about. Um, and those are the kind of books that like I'm looking back on and I'm like, okay, I think I'm ready for some of these because like I, I, I kind of know like what she was trying to do with her fiction, which makes me curious about some of these more well-known works. Definitely. I, I feel kind of the same way. I, although I came away enjoying the story. I get where you're coming from. I appreciated the story more for the commentary as a whole yeah. of like society and some of that stuff than I did of like the actual narrative and the plot. Like you said, it's kind of a it's kind of by design a mess. Like it's it's all over the place, and for you to hold hold on to the characters and like the reality is constantly changing without getting any. So so it's like always leaving you kind of like you said on your back foot, and you're kind of like trying to pivot and figure out where you're coming to the story from. But the way that I found to appreciate the story was so much of the commentary and so much because it's so interpretive. Like what like some of it's pretty pretty much on the nose. Like you know what the commentary is being made. But I found like the idea of weapon getting your dreams weaponized against you or against the world to be really interesting when thinking about artists and the ways that like something leveraging, you know, your dreams against you. If that's like, you know, your creative dreams or your goals or whatever that is, if something is, is harnessing that and then sort of using you for your craft or for your, you know, whatever you provide. In, in that way, I thought that 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 part of the story and, and a lot much more that we'll get into was what is what I liked about the story. But yeah, strangely, my thoughts of what the story was going to be going in set me up with interesting expectations where this like walking away, I expected to love it. And I, I like it a lot. 
but I don't love it. Okay. And I'm sure we'll we'll get into some of the things that kept us from like fully getting there and being like, this is one of my favorite books I've ever read. Um, but I, I did want to like, you know, hop onto what you're talking about with like, obviously there's a lot of metaphor going on here. And the idea of a character whose dreams, and this is just basic premise of the book, a character whose dreams have the power to literally change reality and not change reality going forward from that moment, but change reality as it has always been so that everyone in it doesn't perceive that the reality has been changed at all with a couple of small exceptions. Which almost changes it into like a time travel story in some sense. If that sounds very weird to you, it is. It is. <laughs> and But it's great. And I like weird stuff too. So I know. Like the idea is really cool. And one of the ways in which she does that um, to me, like kind of breaks a contract with the reader that I haven't seen broken before. And that's where I'm like, I respect the experimental nature of it. And that's that like you walk into a room and I describe it to you and that's the reality of the story. And that's what, you know, and that's, you know, I describe the characters and I describe what's in that. Now you can set that aside and say, okay, I've got that understood now let's move forward. And she'll do that. And then sh- like uh, the next chapter, you'll come back to that room and like some stuff is just different now. And sometimes the characters notice it. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they comment on it. Sometimes they don't. And it almost has an effect of like uh, gaslighting you where you're like, is that how it was before? Like, I seem to remember. Or maybe it was like, like, there's so many times in this book where that was happening to me. And then it becomes more obvious, right? Like huge changes. But it makes you doubt even little stuff where you're like, wait, is that was that always true about that character? Is that like a little subtle change that is now there? And because of that, it makes it kind of a hard read, right? Like, because you don't have that, like, firm ground to stand on that you usually have. It's mimicking what the characters are going through for the reader, too, which is very cool and experimental. But like you said, this is all definitely done on purpose. (laughs) It's hard to follow at times, though. (laughs) Yeah. So, okay, before we get too far into it, because we have so much to talk about in this episode, um, I want to talk a little bit about why we're covering this, this book of all her books and why we're covering it now. So my wife uh, recently attended a book club here in Portland, Oregon, uh, that is hosted by a, I think, new bookstore called Parallel Worlds. Um, It is a little bookstore in the Alberta uh, district that is exclusively devoted to fantasy and science fiction, maybe some horror, but like speculative genre stuff, right? So I heard that and I was like, well, that's very cool. So I went and visited it and saw it for myself. It's very small, but it's cool to walk into a store that is exclusively that, right? Yeah, totally. And um, that bookstore has been doing these monthly book clubs where they do like a read along and then you meet up and you discuss a book. And last month, my wife and some of her friends uh, participated and they discussed uh, Gideon the Ninth, Mm -hmm. um, which is a book I've been wanting to read and I've actually read part of, but... Because we haven't covered it on the podcast, I haven't finished it yet. <laughs> yeah, she she uh, sent that to to uh, my girlfriend and I, and I was like, "Damn, that premise of that sounds awesome. I love it." Yeah, it sounds very cool, and I hear a lot of good things about it. And I was enjoying it. I just again, I then I go and I read something like this instead because podcast. Um, but regardless, um, my wife had such a good time. She was like, "Oh, you know, I you, this is something I wish you could come do with me." And then she was like, "In fact." I found out that our next, the next book on the docket is this Ursula K. Le Guin novel, The Lathe of Heaven, that has an adaptation. I was like, oh, I didn't even know that that had an adaptation. I'd heard of The Lathe of Heaven. I, you know, of course I know about Le Guin, but I 
I hadn't heard that there was an adaptation of it. So I looked into it and I was like, oh, there is. And in fact, there's two. There's like a original like BBC one. And then there's a, a newer one that was made in like for American audiences, I think, that isn't as well respected. Um, well, I'm sure we'll get into a lot of that next week when we talk about the adaptation. Um, but I was like, okay, so I guess that means it's technically possible for us to cover it on the podcast. So let me look into it a little more. And, and ultimately, it was like, this is a good excuse to cover an author who we've been wanting to talk about and I've been wanting to dive into. So I was like, all right, we're going to do this book. I'm going to go to the book club, which um, is meeting in a couple days here. So I, I can report back next week when we do our movie episode and let you know how, how it went. Um, yeah, I, I think it's, it'll be fun. It's a little different, right? I think it's cool that a bookshop like this in Portland, Oregon is, re- is you know, recommending this as their book of the month that they're going to do a review on because it's so Portland centric and it's Le Guin and that's so fun. Yeah, she's, you know, one of the maybe one of the most famous authors in the Pacific Northwest and in Portland for sure. Like she's just so famous and um, it is cool. And uh, so once again, that's Parallel Worlds. And I will link their Instagram in the show notes. Uh, I believe that's like, the platform they're most active on. And yeah, if you're in the area or if you come by the area, I recommend them. They're a cool bookstore and they do they do good stuff. So check them out. Um, but yeah, let's get into Le Guin, the author, because I again, I have a lot of opinions about the book, but I want to spend a little bit of time talking about her and what makes her so important and interesting. Yeah, let's do it. I, you know, I'm fascinated. I want to learn more. So Ursula Krober Le Guin uh, was born in 1929 and would die in 2018. So only five years ago. I remember it well. I remember, you know, we the podcast was going when, when uh, that happened. Yep. So she was an American author best known for her works of speculative fiction, including science fiction works set in her Hainish universe and the Earthsea fantasy series. She was first published in 1959 and her literary career spanned nearly 60 years producing more than 20 novels and over 100 short stories, in addition to poetry, literary criticism, translations, and children's books. She is frequently described as an author of science fiction, but Le Guin has also been called a major voice in American letters and has said that she would prefer to be known as an American novelist. So kind of similar to um, Margaret Atwood in that way, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, But I think for good reason. Like Watching this documentary about her, it, she talked about how, like, she tried to at first just get into the like broader literary scene, but it was absolutely dominated by white men at the time. This was the era of like Ernest Hemingway and a lot of people like that were just like hyper realistic, very much macho. A lot of that was like that's what literature was. And she kind of saw science fiction fantasy as a, as a chance to do something that was already kind of punk rock and kind of outside the norm and go to that space. But then when she got there, she realized that it was also considered like a lesser art form. And so one of her driving ideas to me seemed like her philosophies to me was like she wanted to write important literature in a speculative space. Um, And we've seen that a few times. And we talk about it all the time, how we are huge proponents of the genre space being one that is so like you can get as literary as you want and it can be just as elevated of material as you know your most you know i don't want to point fingers so i'll (laughs) just say you know your most highbrow i guess stuff out there yeah and it's it has has room for both right you can have ursula k le guin and then you can also have like really pulpy you know, action adventure stories that don't get into that really, that kind of stuff. Space for all of it, yeah. I think there's space for all of it and all of it has value. Um, But it's definitely cool to see someone come in and say, well, I'm going to do the kind of writing I want to do, but I'm going to do it here. 
Um, and then one thing that um, I found really interesting watching this documentary was it was talking about how in her early work for years, all of her main characters were men. And she even talked about how she struggled to conceive of books where the main characters weren't men. Oh, weird. And it seems to me that she was sort of like working through her own internalized, you know, misogyny, I guess, to, to, to put a word to it. And in the society she had grown up in and how it affected her. Um, and then she had this sort of like push and pull with feminism as it became this major, uh, had this major revival. Um, and so she at first wasn't embraced by the movement because she was a stay-at-home mom slash author and she spent a lot of time raising her children and was unabashedly proud of her role as a mother. And at the time when feminism was having its sort of revival, there was a lot of momentum towards not getting married, not having children, being independent and rejecting your more traditional uh, gender roles. And so she always felt like she was kind of getting excluded from that because of her role as a mother. And so she, at first she had sort of this, you know, and, and again, she had written all these books with male protagonists. And I think a lot of feminist readers were looking at that and going, well, like, why she's writing about men. But one of the things I really respect about her and became clear in this documentary was that she was not someone who was set in her ways, in, you know, at all. And she was constantly learning and growing. And she said that, like, she would write books about ideas, not because she had figured them out, but because she wanted to figure them out. And she wanted the book to be a step in further understanding. So she would write about gender and she would write about, you know, different philosophical questions. Uh, She wrote a lot of Taoism and Buddhism is in her works, um, anarchism. Um, a lot of this kind of stuff. And she she wasn't writing at them from a place of authority as much as it was like she wanted to learn more about them. And, and her way of learning about stuff was to write about it. Um, I can see that in her social understanding and her, and her sort of like opinions about her own role in that world. And so over time, she began to write women as her protagonists. And in fact, I think it was the, f- the fourth Earthsea book I, I saw was the first one that featured a woman protagonist. Now, the Tombs of Ottawa, I believe, is also a woman, but I think she discounted that because that character is like basically imprisoned and has no power. And so she wanted to write a woman who had power and could sort of fill the more stereotypical coming of age empowerment that we often see male characters get. She wanted to write a woman who could do that. Um, and she began to em- embrace that. And then when she, around that time, she it seems like the feminist movement really embraced her in return. And all of a sudden she became championed as a, a feminist figure in fantasy and science fiction. And in fact, she became the first uh, woman to win both a Nebula and a Hugo the same year. And that was for her book, The Left Hand of Darkness, that uh, I talked about where it explored gender in that way. Um, so the first book to ever win, both of those are considered largely like the two biggest awards in sci-fi and fantasy. She won them the same year in, I believe, in 1972, I want to say. Maybe it was 73. Anyway, around that time. And she was in a space, because we're talking 70s science fiction, like 60s and 70s science fiction and fantasy, hugely male-dominated. Um, this is the era 
of the quote unquote golden age. You know, you got your your Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, you know, Philip K. Dick, you know, like people like that are dominating the space. And she comes in as a woman, you know, writing this weird, you know, experimental stuff that is literary. And a lot of people called it soft science fiction because it wasn't as crunchy. It wasn't trying to get into like scientific theory like a lot of those authors were. And so, of course, there was a lot of pushback against her. And even just being in that space was was sort of a, a bold action, honestly, and just being in those rooms and, and taking up space. And because of that, she served as this inspiration for an entire generation of women authors who are you know still working today, obviously, who grew up loving her work and being inspired by her and her being sort of a figure who showed that it could be done. Um, so and that way, I think that's one of the reasons she's like so beloved in the, in, our, in the industry. It's you know, you mentioned coming coming into a sci-fi community and having your Arthur C. Clarks and your your Isaac Asimovs and the way that their sci-fi feels and how I don't know, you know, at what point sci-fi and fantasy became like blended to the point that sometimes it's you can't say it's one or the other. But this story especially and, you know, I don't I don't know. Out, like how how much Earthsea gets into sci-fi mm. but seeing that you know that's also revolutionary to think about it's like in, in an era when like sci-fi was really defined as much more sci-fi for her to be kind of blending the two um maybe you know maybe that's why it's, it's more soft sci-fi because there was there were those fantasy elements that weren't well, necessarily as explainable as the you know data crunching th- i think that's part of it but also um what i was what i was get- gathering from reading about her is that her, at least her expression of soft science fiction was that she centered social ideas. Mm. Her her what ifs were what if society formed around a different core concept rather than capitalism or rather than patriarchy or rather than, you know what I mean? And so she would explore a future where something else was changed. And a lot of other like harder science fiction is like what if there was a device that could do this thing yeah trying to predict and in, and and puts it in our world other than that it's like kind of a more recognizable world and often a lot of these guys were were scientists who were also writing fiction right and so like they weren't necessarily as interested in that whereas she had this background in like studying french and philosophy her father was this uh really interesting guy who had this relationship with um, one of the like one of the most famous um, Native Americans from the, the West Coast, who um, he like had this like anthropological interaction with, and he would like um, write books about, and he would go on to talk about, and like um, I, don't, I don't know a lot of I don't know a lot of the specifics, but he was like a pretty well known figure for his interactions uh, with the Native Americans, and it's something that I think she always found interesting about how our society and you know american society that she grew up in she from a young age was aware that it had been built on genocide and had been built on oppression and so she talks about how it took her a long time and it's something that she like continuously was working through was like how do we how how to exist in this society knowing that and how to go forward and there was there's a short story she's known for that I actually really want to read now. I've heard a, a couple different people talk about it, and it was mentioned in this documentary, and it reminded me of it. It's called The Ones Who Walk Away from Amelis, and it ended up winning um, awards, a Hugo Award, 
And it's it's a short story, but it's also a philosophical thought experiment. And um, just to, to, to put like a very general idea of like what this is, is it describes a utopian city that it welcomes you into as a reader. And basically all levels of society are perfect, happy, everyone's thriving. Um, it is it is truly utopian in like every way. And yet somewhere in one basement in this city, there is a child who is locked in the dark and abused. Like no one can speak to them. They just suffer. And the existence of this city is tied to that abuse and suffering. And everyone who is in this society knows it and are complicit in it happening. So this reminds me of like, would you would you click a red button to kill somebody, but you get a million dollars kind of thing. Like they get a utopia, but one child has to suffer somewhere for it. Uh, yeah, I guess in that way, it's, it's that thought experiment. And so the question becomes, uh, well, and the I guess the story is about the ones who choose to walk away from this utopian society. Oh, I see. Over this one child's suffering. Um, and in, it sounds in, very in, cool. in a lot of ways, it's it's this analysis of the utilitarian, you know, uh, what is best for for the most is better for all. You know what I mean? Like, and, and that's something we see in this book. Like the idea of eugenics is intrinsically tied to this, right? Like the suffering of a few, if it benefits the whole, is seen as worth it. And so, of course, this that story explores that, right? And I think on a on a personal level, for her, even existing in American society that had been built upon genocide, and something that she was very aware of, like that's something she'd been you know thinking about throughout her entire career. And I think that kind of theme comes up a lot in her work. And you can just see how like this is really heavy stuff. This is really interesting philosophical questions, and it's a lot of like she doesn't have the answers for it, but she's she would create worlds and situations that ask you to think about it. That wasn't something that was being done frequently at the time. Um, and then, of course, uh, some of the authors that we know and love today have, have talked about how influential she was. Um, Neil Gaiman was a big part of this documentary. You know, I could, I could feel a little bit of Gaiman being inspired by Le Guin when I was reading this. And he was. Um, he was the one who actually presented her with the award in 2014 that I talked about. Um, and he, you could just tell he has so much respect for her, um, watching him talk about her, uh, China Mielvel, who I already talked about, but like a lot of, a lot of authors just, uh, were inspired by her and, and shown that you could talk about topics like that outside of your typical science kind of science fiction, where it was just about like, what if, you know, what if space travel, what if aliens, and instead get more into like. What if a society that is just different on some fundamental level? Or what if you had the power to remake reality based off your dreams, which is what we get to here. Um, and, and, you know, it's funny because like reading through her most well-known works, like the Lathe of Heaven didn't come up very often. So in some ways, I feel like we're coming in on like a deeper cut. Mm-hmm. If you want to think of it that way, it's not one of her most well-known works. Which is why I still I want to get into some of those really well-known ones, you know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But yeah, man, there's so much interesting stuff. Like, I mean, I have to assume there's got to be like landmarks dedicated to Le Guin in your area too, right? Like, especially with this story, you can tell the experiences she's had there have shaped a lot of how she was telling this story in particular. Totally. I mean, like this this book has such a sense of place um, and it's so interesting to see reality changing. From the perspective of somebody in the 70s writing about Portland 
and like future realities that continuously change. Well, the in the 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 constant is that it's like we're basically always in Portland or in Oregon at least. And but it, you're seeing how reality changes in the mic and the macro, but you're also seeing it in the micro and like in, in our, just in the immediate surroundings. And often that's in Portland, which you know I've lived in Portland for I guess it's, you know eight nine years now. And um, it's just it's very cool to see that represented. Um, I'm, I'm at the point now where, like, I recognize most things she's talking about. Like, they, they have very direct meanings to me. And I'm realizing that, like, you know, if you're someone who's from New York City or, like, Chicago or, like, certain, ma- you know, major frequently written about cities, this is a pretty frequent occurrence for you where you read a book and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I get all of that. Or watch a show or, you know, movie. And anything. how unusual it was for me to have that happen because it's like, yeah, Portland doesn't get talked about in that way usually. Um, definitely nowhere I grew up or, or spent a lot of time in Florida gets written about in that way. No, not really. So, yeah, yeah pretty pretty unusual but, but cool to see. And then, again, like some wild shit happens to Portland in this book, <laughs> which we'll get into. <laughs> yeah, crazy. Especially because, you know, hearing from people who've lived there for a long time, Portland became very, very popular, too. So, like, the 70s Portland was a lot different than, like, current and even, like, 10 years ago Portland. And, like, thinking about, especially because, you know, you've talked to me a lot about how, and I've been there, I've seen it, how beautiful it is, the area, and how, like, it's so tied to nature and all this stuff. And then you see, like, some of the versions are, like, it becomes this, like, like worldwide hub mecca of, like, technology and like it's bustling like the, it's like the most populated city in the world yeah. it becomes the, the it becomes the capital of the earth at one in one version of reality yeah it's insane <laughs> yeah so it must have been super interesting and, and like you, you're thinking of like industrializing in such a major way an area that's so known for its nature and the mountains and the falls and the gorge yeah. well because we start off and we're in we're in a dystopian city a version of of uh, it's not, I, I almost call it cyberpunk just because that's like natural to do but like it's not cyberpunk but it is this like dystopian post-apocalyptic overcrowded constantly like cloudy and smoggy and rainy um threat of nuclear war often like maybe there's versions that we've well, we seen start that- out with the guy's got his like eyelids burned off and shit like because that version of reality there had been some sort of big nuclear war and like all the all kinds of wild stuff but uh, just like a little bit more before we get into the actual book um, just on some of the influences I saw, um, and these are so far ranging that I'm just barely scratching the surface, but the Earthsea books in, in particular are cited as having a hugely wide impact in the field of literature. They are often called wellsprings of fantasy. Uh, modern writers have credited the book with the idea for a wizard school, uh, which of course was made famous later by the Harry Potter series, but people tie it back to Le Guin as being one of the first to do totally. it. Totally. Yeah, I'm reading those books, by the way. I'm going to read through the Earthsea series once I finish some of the other stuff I'm working on right now. Well, and here's another one that will probably get you excited. The notion of naming as its ability to exert power is a major theme in the Earthsea books, which many have suggested inspired Hayao Miyazaki's use of the idea in his 2001 film, Spirited Away. I can see it. I mean, like, it's clear that Miyazaki's probably familiar with her work because his studio would go on to adapt some of it. Yeah, and um, I'll add that uh, The Name of the Wind uh, naming is a major magical, you know, like, that's the nature of magic in a lot of that series. And um, I don't, I think Rothfuss has addressed this. I'm not sure exactly what he said. I can't remember off the top of my head. But, I mean, you just look at that, like, like, in Earthsea, there's a master namer that, like, the main character has to go learn from. And, like, that exact thing basically happens in The Name <laughs> of the Wind. So, like, it, again, like, it seems like just that that influence is huge. 
she's gotten so many you know famous books that have influenced different parts of of uh you know the fandom and 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 so many different writers and di- writing in different um genres it's just really cool to see um and then yeah she uh passed away 2018 um 88 years old and you know this beloved figure and again if you want to know more about her life again i'm just barely scratching the surface it's really cool to pen powerful to hear her talk and through her own words talk about her life and talk about what she was trying to do and her relationship with feminism and like stuff like that. It's just so interesting to hear her talk about. Um, I'll, I'll link that. I found it on YouTube. I don't know if it's legal. I don't, it probably isn't. So I'm hesitant to link it, but at the very least I'll put the name of it down and you can, you can find a way to watch it. Um, and, and, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe YouTube, maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to endorse it. You know what I mean? Cause I'm not sure if that's legal. I just saw it on there and clicked it and I was like, Oh, is this, is this the whole thing? And I kind of ended up watching it before really thinking about like, well, maybe this was a pirated version that shouldn't be on YouTube. And I don't know. I don't know. It's kind of <laughs> interesting how that stuff works. Yeah. It's like, if it, we don't need to go into all this copyright <laughs> stuff, but basically like if, if the people are out there looking for it, they get flagged, but then there are some smaller things like this that probably do have copyright they shouldn't just be out there but you know they haven't caught it so i don't know or it could be that they're like yeah put it out on youtube get it out as, as much as we can do you think you would have found it if it were not on? YouTube? i had heard of it so i realized after i clicked on it because i just thought it was a video about her and then i realized i'm like oh i think this is the documentary i heard about and it came i remember it came out around the time she passed away um and i was like oh this is that documentary and i ended up watching it and then like i looked down at like the channel that posted it and that's where I got a little skeptical because I'm like, yeah. I think this is just some random ass channel that, you know, that shouldn't be officially it was posting. like fantasy boy one five nine. Yeah. So anyway, um, it's out there and it's worth watching how you watch. It'll be up to you. But I think it's time to move into the book. Um, I know I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about that. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like there's so much more to learn about Ursula Le Guin. Go look into her stuff. Well, and hopefully we can we can return to her her material at some point because there were other adaptations, right? Yeah, there's been a few others attempted. Our Earthsea had a sort of notorious one that uh, went through whitewashing. Oh, she was also well known for having darker skinned characters in many of her books. That was at a time when that wasn't a thing, and. That was one of the things a lot of people, I think, didn't like about the RC adaptation, if I remember correctly, is that we, like, whitewashed the main character. So, you know, that's something we could potentially look at. You know, we're not necessarily against covering bad adaptations. It gives us something to talk about. Um, we just kind of prefer to cover good stuff because we like good stuff. <laughs> um, and I just don't know how many other, like, serious adaptations have been made of her work, but I, I think there are a few others out there. But let's get into The Lathe of Heaven. Um, I'm going to launch right into some plot summary. That way we have... We can establish sort of the the ground rules, the setting, what's going on in the story. We'll start delving into spoilers. We've already touched a little bit on like what it's about, but like we'll try and kind of keep them related to the the section of the book at hand. Um, so if it ends up sounding like a book that you're like, oh, I do think I want to read this at any point, feel free to stop, go read it, and you can always come back. Yeah, but you have to come back. Yes, you have to. That's the rules. <laughs> this it's a contract. Um, all right. <laughs> It's 2002 in Portland, Oregon. I didn't realize it was 2002, but I saw that boldly stated in a couple of the summaries I found. So I, it must have said that at some point. I just I missed it. Did, it. Yeah. Okay. So 2002, the distant future. <laughs> yeah. Imagine if you can. This book was written in 1971. So she was imagining 31 years in the future. 
Um, and because of that, like some things kind of line up and some things are way off, but you know, that's how it is. I was surprised about some of the socioeconomic and political situations that were pretty, I was like, wow, yeah, you know, pretty spot on. Some of them were pretty spot on. So the planet suffers from overpopulation, food scarcity, global war, and the devastating effects of climate change. Does any of that sound familiar? A man named George Orr has the ability to have effective dreams that change reality. Disturbed by the experience, he abuses drugs to stop himself from dreaming. When Orr is caught stealing pharmacy cards to get more drugs, he attends therapy sessions with Dr. William Haber, an ambitious psychiatrist and sleep researcher to avoid jail time. Though Haber initially thinks Orr is crazy, he changes his mind after witnessing Orr have an effective dream during a hypnotic sleep study. After this, Haber secretly exploits Orr's condition to change the world, enhancing Orr's dreaming capabilities using an EEG machine called the Augmenter. He also feeds Orr hypnotic suggestions to make him dream into reality, utopic alternate realities that reflect Haber's vision of a better world. However, the utopic changes Orr's dreams create are always accomplished through dystopic means. For instance, when Haber gives Orr the hypno-suggestion to dream of world peace, Orr creates a world where formerly warring nations band together to defeat alien invaders' attack on the moon. Meanwhile, each effective dream improves Haber's status until he's in charge of the entire world. Okay, so let's stop there. There's a lot that happens early on here. And in fact, like we're getting really kind of far along, but like this is actually given to us other than starting out with a jellyfish and like someone whose eyes eyelids have been burned off or something like it starts. It actually starts with kind of a slow drip as we get. And this is what I was talking earlier about, like I needed somewhere to kind of sink my teeth and like feel like I'm sort of grounded in a story. And I finally get that when we get the meeting with Haber and he starts talking to him about this. He has a, he's like, oh, you have a phobia of sleeping and you have a phobia of dreams and then therefore you are have a phobia of sleeping. And he's like, I'm a sleep psychologist. This is the stuff I deal with all the time. Let's talk about it. And that's something that's very familiar to me. I'm like, okay, I can get into this. And I really liked the the sort of interaction of these two characters early where it's like, so you're having dreams where you think that you are changing reality. And you can immediately see how like a rational person would look at that and say, this is similar to like a um, deja vu or something where it's like your, your, your brain is kind of like making sense of reality and then tying it to a dream. And then like the you're somewhere in there, you're getting your like the origin is getting messed up and you're thinking that it actually originated in the dream. But actually the dream didn't. You know what I mean? Like you could see why he would think that. But then you also see from the other point of view where or is like, well, of course, no one believes me. Everyone else is being sort of changed whenever I change reality and they're losing it. And a lot of this is evidenced by this like picture of Mount hood that yeah, we got to talk about that this then changed into a horse. <laughs> and that's like the first and then thing changes into <laughs> what? <laughs> and then changes into horse shit, which I was like, In what the, the shape fuck? of Mount hood. She, <laughs> she turned Mount hood into horse shit. I was like, what's the, what, what's, what's the commentary being made? But here? that's but, very small, right? Like that's just such a small thing. He's changing like the picture on the wall. Right. At first, at least that's what's happening. Well, and they're all related. Like the horse kind of looks like the guy he says. So they're like he's taking things in and then being directed in a way like dream about a horse. And then he has no control what kind of effects will come of that. So like the horse kind of looks like him. Then the you know, he's like it was a mountain before. And then the horse literally shit and then created 
a giant shit that looks like Mount Hood. <laughs> and so it's like this continuous thing of like the, he keeps going into these dreams given a given like a prompt and then it like goes wildly in the other direction. It's kind of and it's kind of like that Pandora's box, like monkey paw kind of thing where it's like, you know, if you if you do this, you know, you can't put it back the way it came before. And, and like it's going to be it's like a boon with a with a drawback of some kind, like you're getting something for giving away more than what you're kind of expecting. And it's interesting because he talks about uh, or talks about how like it's my subconscious mind. So I can't control the way in which I'm dreaming these things. So that's why he's like afraid of it. It's like it's like this is such an immense power, but he doesn't have direct control over it. It's however his unconscious mind interprets it. And then now he's got this doctor giving him suggestions and his unconscious mind finds a way to like make it work. And the way that it finds to make it work is often like dystopic, like it talked about in the summary. Um, and, you know, <laughs> it, it's that's where we things start going off the rails. But I did find their interactions to be really interesting in the sense that like the doctor kept trying to claim that that this wasn't happening even as the doctor was realizing that it was happening. We don't know as the readers for a long time that he does know that it's happening and is manipulating it, well, obviously, right? Like, he, he doesn't want George to know or, or yeah, Orr Yeah, he, like, doesn't want Orr to know or he doesn't want Orr to realize that he believes him. And so he keeps that secret from him for a long time. And then also, like, I don't think he is willing to admit to himself because it's such a insane thing to have happen yeah that's definitely true up until the point where the lawyer gets involved uh what's her name it's, heather yeah I think. that's when he finally is like kind of admitting to at least to himself yeah he's been maneuvering things to his own advantage in ways but without kind of like you said acknowledging it yeah. he's kind of just been we're, like oh i'm getting lucky we're about to get to the lawyer um but re real quick I, I like some early character work that's being done here um there's a lot of like trying to define or as a character and how he is this, like, at first he seems kind of passive and impressionable, and he just kind of goes along with things. And um, he seems kind of weak, to, you know, to, to put it bluntly. And Haber, by comparison, is judgmental. He's, like, kind of, he's like an elite who he thinks he's better than everybody. But he's kind of skeevy at first. He's kind of like they, like yeah, like a salesman. Yeah, or something. but like he's, he's also a, like, he's like, I'm helping you and I know better than you. And he kind of enjoys, there's like a couple of moments that, that definitely put me off him where it's like, he kind of enjoys the dominant power he has in these in these situations. And he also has this like derision towards Orr early on where he like really doesn't like him. And he's like, oh, this guy's so pathetic. And like he's like really dismissive of him. But then he ends up manipulating him. And it kind of sets up this really like I think the reason she does that from the author's point of view is she wants to establish how Haber's able to compartmentalize what he's doing to Orr and how he's able to control yeah. him. And also why he uh, he can be so dismissive of him. Well, because in his mind, it's all for the greater good. Right. Yeah. The idea of the greater good keeps coming back around. And he he even decides, and we're about to get into it, um, he decides that he's going to change the world to address the overpopulation issue. That um, or, or is talking about how, how difficult it is, how he can't fit on these like subways, and he has this tiny apartment, and the world's so overcrowded. And he basically suggests a way for him to do that, that the way it ends up coming out is uh, or invents a plague. It's like a plague of cancer is the way it's described. It was like in a in like some sort of carcinogenic plague 
that wiped out. I don't. I didn't get that exact percentage. But six like, billion. Six billion people. And reality just changes to where that's now what has always been, or like that's now the the state. And all of a sudden, like looking out the window, they see Portland change, and it goes from this super crowded, dense you know, tons of towers city to like a more open, it's like, Oh, look how much more open it is. Like environments coming back. It's a nicer place. But, or is like, what about the 6 million people I just killed? You know? And like, he is, he rec, he like is more torn up about that than, than Haber ever seems to be. Haber seems very dismissive of that. He's just like, let's make the world better. And if we lose a bunch of people, then that's what we got to do. It's, it's all, you know, it all, is worth it if you're making a better world that was where i was like oh okay so he he's like our villain like i thought <laughs> yeah. maybe he was kind of unintentionally doing some of the stuff and didn't understand the power of it but then it's like oh he like doesn't fucking care about six billion people dying um but i do want to talk about too before we move on from this this got me thinking a lot about like lucid dreaming and the nature of dreams and you know how interesting of a topic it is because we it's still such an you can't define sort of what dreams are or how they were, or at least as far as I know, you can't. And and like what the purpose is and and why sometimes you'll dream and other times you won't or, or you won't remember it. It's an area of study they're still actively working on for sure. Um, and my understanding is there is some technology that has recently come out where they're able to analyze brain waves. Like they're able, like if someone had a dream about a fire truck. Mm-hmm. They are able to analyze the moment in their dream where they had that, and they're able to use the data from the brain to form an image, and that image resembles a fire truck. Yeah. So they found ways to start to do that, where they're actually starting to be able to translate people's brain waves to actual images and shit. Well, I mean, I don't know how you knew that I always dream about fire trucks for <laughs> right. one, but but also it's just always a fire uh, truck. There. It's always my fire truck dream. <laughs> but uh also, I've never done it, never tried honestly, but I've heard a lot of people talk about like lucid dreaming and the the attempt to kind of get yourself and your mind in a state to where you can control your dreams more. And I think that's fascinating and it almost sounds fake to me. Yeah. But I don't know, it sounds like it might be a real thing. I don't There's know. There's a lot of pseudoscience you'll encounter out there about it. Um but there it is a cool area, right? And it's so rife for science fiction. There's so many been there's been so many good stories about the you know dreams and and um, the you know the science behind them and how they do kind of blend reality and blend with like our understanding of it. I mean, I was thinking about Sandman honestly while reading this book a little bit, and and like a whole different take on dreams, right? And what what dreams are. I definitely like like I mentioned before, Neil Neil Gaiman came to mind when I was reading this, and it's not not a particularly specific, t- like it doesn't necessarily match his style perfectly, but it just something about it brought that to mind. Uh, one thing I did read, I didn't mention earlier, is that this period of her writing is said to have been heavily influenced by Philip K. Dick. Apparently, she really liked Philip K. Dick and his writing, and a lot or a lot of her works from this period, people see a lot of similarities between her and and Dick, which I think is funny because we've talked a lot about Dick and how like I'm also not like the hugest fan of his writing style. I do think it's pretty different than hers. But didn't he have in like Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Didn't he? There's like a dream machine. Yeah, and he is he is also that like more soft science guy like he's he's still in that space but like a lot of his books weren't about the science as much as they were about like a wild concept and it wasn't super important to him whether or not it like could happen mm-hmm. as much as it was like what if it could let's talk about it <laughs> you know <laughs> sure yeah um so i could see that and it's cool that she like apparently really liked his writing 
one more thing that I had in my notes too was I just have like with question marks and ex- exclamation points all over the place. Aliens! <laughs> you know, right? Out of fucking nowhere. I was, like, I, I was so surprised. Aliens on the moon! <laughs> Aliens on the moon! I couldn't believe that Like that, we went to that point. And then the, just the, the places that she takes that. It had been so like buttoned down before that, right? Like it, it, I mean, there was plagues and bombs and wars and shit, sure, but yeah. it was still very like standard stuff that like theoretically could happen it was very like terrestrial and then all of a sudden you introduce aliens and things start getting real weird yeah and then the way that she incorporates them into the society eventually too just like it's so cool and original and unique so all right getting ahead of ourselves a little bit there (laughs) um so or consults with a lawyer named heather lalosh to end his sessions with haber but haber's elevated social status prevents heather from interfering with or's treatment heather initially doubts or's ability to change the world but she changes her mind after observing Orr dream effectively during one of his sessions with Haber. Orr's dream enables her to remember multiple realities. Orr falls in love with Heather and informs her that the real world was destroyed during nuclear war in April of 1998, and their present world is just an alternate reality he dreamed in the aftermath. In the final attempt to restore normalcy, Heather hypnotizes Orr to dream that aliens are no longer on the moon, but the plan backfires when Orr's dream moves the alien invasion from the moon to Earth. A violent battle ensues, and a bomb strikes Mount Hood, causing the previously dormant volcano to awaken and erupt. After this, Orr dreams that the aliens are nonviolent, and they assimilate into Portland's human population. The aliens are courteous citizens, though nobody can actually see them, since they're always encased in big, clunky, turtle-like suits that allow them to breathe the Earth's air. So we just got some wild changes happening, but let's talk about Heather because she's a very important character. One of the only other, like there's basically like three super important characters and she's one of them. Um, and she's, you know, she's fascinating. She comes in, she's skeptical. She's this kind of like high powered lawyer who's, you know, not afraid of anybody. There's all this like, like black widow stuff. Like she's like a man eater and all this stuff. And then like um, she's mixed race, which ends up becoming important. Um, and she witnesses, she like agrees to go and watch this thing go down. Cause she's like, if he's using an experimental procedure on you, that might not be legal. And, or is already like trying to kind of get out of this situation as he's realizing he's being taken advantage of. Um, and because she's present in the room and watching it happen, she's one of the only people who's able to perceive the differences. And the way that this is described is really interesting. And it's that the new reality has its own line of memory connected with it. But the old reality still exists as a memory for you as well. And they overlap each other. And so it's very difficult for characters, even who are able to perceive both realities to not just write it off as a dream and, and and just to like differentiate between the memories. So often she'll start making mistakes where she thinks something happened. And it's like, no, not in this reality that never happened. And like, Laura is at the center of this. He struggles with this all the time. But um, I just thought that was a really fascinating way and believable way when you're handling something so mind-breaking. But it felt like, yeah, this is probably how it would go if something like this could somehow happen. <laughs> yeah. Similar to what Haber goes through, she, the first time, kind of in her mind, justifies it as like, that was that's not real. That didn't actually happen. And then like in coming back around and seeing or later on multiple times, she's like, oh, shit, like that, you know, my husband did die. And, uh, you know, there's other things that kind of connect her back to the old memories. 
even though the you know reality is completely changed. Yeah, and then the, this this romance is interesting too because it it ends up becoming kind of a, one of the core pieces of plot development. Um, it shows Orr and Heather um, and their relationship that becomes um, kind of a centerpiece for the story going forward. I wasn't expecting it. It was kind of um, kind of came out of nowhere for me, but I ended up liking it. Okay, I think it was interesting. Yeah, I I liked it okay as well. Um, I think that you telling me a lot about Le Guin and where she was at is definitely recontextualizing some things. So where I'm thinking about have the dynamic of having Heather introduce and then as this powerful character and then stripping away her agency as time goes on in the story, and then and that's of- what makes her I, I think such an important character because um, her role in society is changed and then also even her existence um as we'll as we'll as we'll get to in this next section and specifically too with her being mixed race and the way that that's handled and talked about eventually everybody becomes gray i guess yeah you know all right let's get into the next section here we'll finish it out but then i I do want to spend some time talking about like why why write this story and what like what she's getting at um and i think we're starting to touch on some of it but let's talk about this gray situation so the normalcy doesn't last for long, however, and Haber resumes his treatment of Orr. When Haber coerces Orr to eliminate racism, Orr creates a world that eliminates race itself, which makes everyone's skin turn an identical shade of gray. In this new reality, Heather, who was biracial, ceases to exist. Orr later dreams of an alternate reality in which a gray, milder version of Heather is his wife. Speaking with an alien helps Orr understand his condition and empowers him to confront Haber. During their final session, Haber, quote, cures Orr by making him dream that he can no longer dream effectively. Haber's research with Orr enables him to use the augmenter to have his own effective dreams. Haber's first effective dream turns into a nightmare that causes the world to melt into a state of incoherent chaos. Orr detaches Haber from the augmenter and saves the world, though elements of different realities now commingle in a single dimension. Months later, Portland has mostly returned to normal. Haber's knowledge of unreality puts him in a catastrophic state, and he's institutionalized. Orr has a job designing kitchen appliances for an alien named Asfa. A restored Heather enters Asfa's shop one day, though she only has a vague memory of Orr. Orr invites Heather to a nearby cafe, optimistic about the possibility of winning back her love. Okay, so there's this summary's taken some leaps here and some some interpretations, but I like most of them. I think I think it's there. Um, but yeah, so so he he's like, yeah, we're gonna eliminate racism, and the way that that's imagined is a world where everybody's gray. And then I love the sort of message that like Heather can't exist in this world because so much of what made her her, when you take away her identity and you take away her race, like that makes it to where she can't even be anymore. Um, and when he does find a way to bring her back, it's like a different version of her and he's married to her. And I like that he doesn't get to like keep that version that he dreamt up. And instead at the end, he's, he's forced to like, now that she's been sort of restored, we think, um, he has to like try again and start from scratch. And I do like that element of it. A lot goes on here. I I did want to, some of the stuff that we didn't talk about before was just like the alien attack that was coming in 
there was like defense systems everywhere except Oregon for some reason, and Oregon just gets like hammered, blown to smithereens. <laughs> they shot all and... the missiles at, uh, at at the aliens, and then the aliens like redirected them all to Oregon. <laughs> yeah, and then and then basically the the uh, aliens end up being like, guys, we're not violent, even though like you know missiles are flying. Well, all like over the place. he's 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 dreaming at the time that occurs, so I think that that was like a reflective of him starting to change it even then. I think so too. Yeah, but that's the kind of stuff that I'm talking about, where like it doesn't nec- it doesn't always tell you that's happening. So you have to kind of read between the lines to be like, oh, wait a minute, he's asleep right now. So he could be actively changing this as it's playing out. And that's kind of what happened. And uh, I just thought that was important to note in terms of the Portland nature of this story. Like Portland goes through it. Goes through it. And then, you know, when Haber uh, does his dream for the first time. So, So I guess to touch on the thing before that is, you know, ending racism, the the aliens attack or you know basically appeared because they tried to get world peace to happen they wanted the world to yeah so he wanted the world to be at peace and the way that his mind invented that was to give them a common enemy to be worried about and so they have aliens on the moon and so because of that the entire world unifies against them this is like this like monkey paw situation of like oh world peace is is a common enemy and who's who exists off world (laughs) yeah and then getting rid of racism is getting rid of all races and all culture and you know it's it's stripping the world of of all the things that make it enriching and And then one of the more chilling moments in this utopian society quote-unquote utopian was when he's like walking the streets and some guy gets like citizens arrested for having like a a a cancer or something like he has some sort of disease that that was like hereditary and they're like, you didn't disclose it. And so they're going to like euthanize him as long as they had like. T- it was eugenic. Where, where this is where the eugenics comes straight in up. Eugenics comes in and he talks to Haber about it later. And Haber's like, yeah, I know it's distasteful. It's tough to see, but it's for the greater good. Right. And, and that's where it's like, oh, he's fully gone. He's got, he's gone full Nazi at this point, basically. Yeah. I always think about uh, Hot Fuzz to Edgar Wright's Hot Fuzz. Yeah. Where, oh, they're, oh, they're the greater good. Yeah. <laughs> Totally. <laughs> that's that's what it is, right? It's like they, they turn they turn the world into this bland version. All the food's bad. That's one of the things I love too. All the food's bad. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, that that restaurant doesn't exist anymore. He wants to go to these restaurants that don't exist anymore, and then he's eating the food and he's like, that's ah, not very good. Um, I love that that side effect. <laughs> it's awesome, yeah. And, and you know that that's just another detail of of thinking about like you strip everything away from the world that makes it unique and makes people different, and you unify everything, and then everything's the same and nothing's exciting. And I, I don't know if if Portland was known as like a foodie city in the seventies, but it definitely is now. So I love that element of it too, where it's like, yeah, so much of what makes Portland's food scene interesting is that it's it is actually a very diverse food scene, um, and and I think that's what. Yeah, if you take all that away and you eliminate race, it's like, yeah, you're going to be left with a lot of bland food, I think. <laughs> and not to mention just like how fucked up it is, right? Like some people there are, are many still other around. reasons it's fucked up, but that's just it's a cool like way that that comes out in the wash and you just see that in the world building. That's that's what I mean by it. Some people are allowed to be turned into these gray people and then and then entire races are taken out and people aren't allowed to exist. Yeah, anymore, he's like, well, there's no more there. No, there are no more races, so there's no more racism. But then like, yeah, it's like whole people's ways of life are just eliminated. And like what makes, you know, cultures unique. And, and like it also just like the wave of a wand. You're just like th- so so much of this is also there's all these like um, quotes um, spurs, interspersed throughout the book that get into like a lot of philosophy um, and in fact, even the lathe of heaven um, is like a philosophical quote from which actually read was a mistranslation. A lot of these chapters have like epigraphs or something at the beginning where it's yes, like, that's like, what I'm talking about from other works. Yeah. So the title comes from the writings of Shang Tzu, which I'm 
probably not pronouncing perfectly well. But the epigraph in question is translated from chapter three, which is in the novel. And it is, to let understanding stop at what cannot be understood is a high attainment. Those who cannot do it well will be destroyed on the lathe of heaven. So a lathe, if you're not familiar, is a woodworking tool where a piece of wood is spun and then you like come in and you like shave it. And as you shave it, it forms certain shapes in the wood. And that's a lathe. And so the lathe of heaven, you're like, what does that mean? Right. And, and it's like those who, you know, you can be destroyed by the lathe of heaven. And then you're looking at this book and you're just like, well, okay, what was she going for? You have this character who's able to change reality. And that really positions him in a godlike way. Right. Um, but then like the, this is a destructive force, even as it's like a, it, this generative force. Um, and like the push and pull between that, I, I don't know. It's not like a simple, thing for me to like figure out exactly what she meant by it but i can see where she's going with it it's very interesting that's exactly what i would say about it is like i it's hard to define it but i i get it when you think of a lathe and you think of heaven like something shaping a utopia the idea of a heaven or or like you like you said somebody who has that kind of all power well and you have these two characters and like the thing about or is like yeah he might at sometimes be frustrating but he at least recognizes the terrific power he has and it's scarier when when uh haber wields it because he is so sure of himself and sure of his version and his vision of what makes for utopian society and it's scary in his hands as he is ruthlessly eliminating sections of society and eliminating ways of life and reshaping things and then of course there's a lot of like his hypocrisy is laid bare in the sense that he makes himself one of the most powerful people in the world. He makes Portland the capital of the of the planet. He is at the head of this corporation. He's in this skyscraper now. And when they go and see him at the end, like he's personally so huge and imposing. He's like this towering man with a massive beard. And um, Heather is like intimidated just being in his presence. And it's like, that has all occurred because in these in these dreams, he's like he's added little bits about himself and he's added little bits about his his status. And that's the like selfish element of it. Like this is not a selfless act, uh, you know, by any stretch. And a lot of it is about like his own gratification, too. It's like he wants to feel better about himself. And so his way he influences the world is like a way to feel better about himself. It's all kind of a power trip. It's all part of the part of this power trip. And it shows or in a good light, right? Like this character is trying to escape this power in ways like trying to drug himself into to the point where he can't it's not being used and staying up for three nights or how, four nights, however many nights he was able to stay up. And he's he's like he doesn't want it. He doesn't want the power. He's trying to use it for good if possible. But to, honestly, it's it's Haber wielding him more than anything. Another thing I want to talk about is the way that this this book gets so abstract. Yeah. Like I love that about this when Haber's wielding it and things are melting and it turns into like it's this. really weird, man. He like hops in a portal at one point, like a whirlpool or yeah. something. Like it's like a black hole almost. It's like destroying things behind him. It's like portals him. Somewhere yeah, else. yeah. Or it's so weird. Like when the when he likes looks out at the skyline and it starts melting. I'm like, what is happening? You know, like oh, it's like oh, he's dreaming right now. He's having a nightmare. It's very yeah. cool. We were getting this representation of like being able to wield dreams and stuff. But the thing about dreams is like they're so random and like uncontrollable and weird shit and i guess that's, that's what haber comes up against is when he's actually the one doing the dreaming 
he's yeah. lost all ability to control it, whereas yeah. he thought he would have supreme control over it, and it's like his hubris, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, that, it's definitely some of my favorite parts is when everything's melting down and the world's getting so weird, and I just love. And then somehow it all comes together and reforms in, in some some cobbled together version of Portland that that will continue on. The, the aliens are so like dreamlike and strange. And I, any alien who offers me a Beatles record yeah. like is on <laughs> is on on my good side, you know. So they talk from their elbows, <laughs> and yep. they look like and they look like turtles, and. I love the the way Orr sort of recognizes, he's like, all of these aliens seem to really like me. Well, of course they like me. I basically made them. He's like, I don't fully understand the nature of their existence, but I know that I dreamt up a scenario where they existed and then they did. So he's like, maybe I made them. <laughs> you know, like he doesn't know. But then he's also like, and technically I made everything. So shouldn't everything like 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 me and shouldn't I be powerful? And that kind of gives him the agency at the end of the story. Like that's that's him grasping a hold of the story and being like, I got to I got to stop what Haber's doing and, and take some agency well, and do something. Let's talk about it. So like he was so passive early the tur- on. The turtle aliens tell him, I forget, I didn't write it down and I forget it, but he has a name. There's like a name for the kind of thing he is he thinks and the aliens have a name for it, but it's like an incommunicable name, but it seems to be like someone who has the power to dream reality. Um, and it's the thing he created potentially is now providing the answer to him and giving him context for what he is. And it's almost like we were, I don't know. It's, it's really, it's like, he's a God who just doesn't understand how to be a God or something. It's very strange as you try and like get at like what the story really is. But like, um, I love that it's that self-understanding that he does that he makes for himself that leads him to imagine a reality where he no longer has that power and to like let go of chasing perfection. There's like so many little lessons, right? Like he he lets go of trying to make a perfect world. There's even one point where she's like, "This is the world you dreamt up for for you know, there's all these problems and he's like, it's gonna have. It's better than it than it than it's been in the past. We're gonna have to live with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, and and that's the crazy thing is like once this get, starts to get out of hand, it's like you can't put it back together the way it was. So it's like breaking the world in multiple ways. And like every time you try to fix something, something else breaks. I mean, and like the ultimate messages here, right, are about like learning to accept your reality, also recognizing your power to influence your reality, your power to um to manipulate and to form reality like we all have that in a fashion dreams as a form of artistic expression like metaphorically right like Ursula K Le Guin dreams books essentially right like the creative dream makes them a reality and then they go out into the world and people read them and they begin to affect reality and so in a way like she kind of is or like she's dreaming these things she doesn't have full control over them and like how they're going to be interpreted and how they're going to affect the world um, so the idea of this is like a, a, a metaphor for artistic expression, but also just in a broader sense, like you, like we all have the ability to affect reality and that we should be responsible with that power. Some of the main things I walk away with is, yeah, that artistic expression and the way that you need to be wary of trusting people, obviously, and, and the wrong people and the way that they can they can use your abilities against you you know or, or against others and so you have to kind of harness and this story is a lot about individuality too it's like showing what happens when you go against individuality so you have these characters that become like robots and 
characters that you would think would wouldn't have as much humanity in the aliens shown as individuals and shown as like being different than the people uh and how that like once you accept the people that are different than you into society you can you can get a better outcome for everyone what we see is is a world that got to a point that it couldn't come back from and we shouldn't we shouldn't allow it to get to that point you know we should make small changes along the way rather than somebody making one big change because then you're just introducing more problems possibly yeah so so there's a lot of these like really thought provoking heavy topics interesting philosophical questions you know we're 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 sort of waxing rhapsodic about it and so then i feel kind of guilty in the sense that i didn't unabashedly love this book i enjoyed it but I had things about it that I, I don't know, I would struggle to recommend it to people. I'd have to, like, really know what kind of a reader they are. Um, so let's touch a little bit on, like, some of that stuff. And, like, as much as I loved the shifting reality and the way that is portrayed in the book, so much of that reading became so surreal that I felt myself un- unmoored. And that wasn't always, like, a, a pleasurable reading experience. And... um it sometimes would would like turn me off from the narrative and i would i would be like ah oh, this has gotten so so abstract um that as she's trying to represent a world that has gone mad and its rules no longer apply and all this stuff like the writing reflects that and i i can i can be impressed with that on a technical level but also find it kind of difficult to read and that's ultimately where i was at and and not difficult in the sense of like necessarily hard to understand which it kind of was sometimes but i just mean more on like it's just it's it's a different kind of reading it's like it's like convoluted because it's it's so all over the place at times it's asking a lot of you it's asking so much of the reader and then even then like is it is it something you want to do (laughs) as a reader (laughs) i like something that challenges me you know i I think that there is something to be said for a story that challenges you gives you something that you're not expecting and this definitely does that i think there's no debate that we both like this book i think you can like it for the sum of its parts rather than just specific elements of it and that's kind of what i like about this book and i would i would recommend it to people like you said with caveats for one it's not a it's not a huge investment of your time it's not a very very long book it's rather short honestly but it kind of felt longer than it was like it it had the opposite effect like some long books feel short but this is one of those short books that felt kind of long yeah and it's just the the nature of it and i think you know experimentation is cool and you know i walk away liking it for the sum of its parts rather than like the narrative necessarily the story didn't draw me in all that much it was more so like the commentaries being made and especially the time period that it was being made so yeah but i i totally get where you're coming from though like it wasn't the most enjoyable it's not going to jump up my list of favorite things i've read a lot of that's subjective you know and like just what what you enjoy what kind of books you like to read it's not very approachable is another thing I would say, right? Like it's like, it seems on the surface like it would be. It's not a fun escape. And a lot, a lot of books are, you know, kind of a nice escape. Even if they deal with tough topics, it, they can be escapes. And like, this is, this doesn't really do that for me. And so if, in that way, it's more challenging than it is like a piece of entertainment. And I think, you know, important in that way. Yeah. Very strange book. I, I, one funny effect I noticed is that the last few nights I've been having some really weird dreams. <laughs> oh yeah, I kind of had a couple of weird dreams too recently, but I didn't even draw the connection to this. So. I did. I, I woke up. I woke up this morning and I was like thinking about my dreams, and I'm like, what if like some of this shit started to be real? Like I, I kind of had like a moment of like this would be pretty wild. I woke up this morning and I was like, what if fire truck, man? What if fire truck? <laughs> 
Um, and then the other thing I, you know, the other thing I keep coming back to is I'm like, how do you make a movie out of this? Oh yeah, I thought about that a lot throughout. I was like, this movie, there's no way the yeah, movie. Yeah. So, so you're the, you're the filmmaker, man, right? So, so what are your what are your thoughts when if like someone were to say, hey, we're gonna give you a chance to make a movie. Here's the material. How do you even start to approach this thing? And and plus, you know, they had a really limited budget. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I don't know that I would. You know, I don't know this is one that I would undertake. And it's not because I didn't enjoy it. It's because it just seems like it's. Sometimes people find those things that are unadaptable, like reportedly unadaptable, things like Dune for a but long time. Sometimes those make for the best adaptations. And, and they make for great adaptations. But in this case, like I just, I see so much going on in this. It's so surreal and it's so experimental and playing with expectations of readers that you're just getting, you're going to get a weird product. And I just don't think that this film is going to be able to live up to what this is, but I'm interested. I'm interested to see what they did. A lot of it has to be explained to you what's going on along the course of the story. So are we getting like a lot of exposition or are we getting voiceover narration? I definitely think we're getting voiceover. Um, I'll be shocked, but maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Um, I think this movie is going to be a lot more understandable and digestible than this book was. It's going to be like a, a, it's going to like welcome you in and explain things to you simply. Maybe less uh, like shifts in in universe too. Like maybe one or two times that they shift the universe and change it because there's a lot in this book. But man, you know that it makes me excited to think about how you could do this on like how you could subtly change reality and not clue the viewer in on it. And just that would be shit that you would just notice on repeat viewings. And like it would be a high level of difficulty. It'd be a tightrope walk to adapt this for sure. I'm so curious to see what they did with it, um, which is what we'll be getting into next week. Um, so look forward to that. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, let us know in the form of a rating and review uh, on whatever app you chose to listen on Apple Podcasts. Uh, we're getting really close to 100 reviews. We'd love to hit that number. That's been a goal of ours for, you know, really since we got started to get a triple digits. And we're, we're getting closer, ever closer, creeping. But, um, you know, we'd love to, we'd love your help. And make sure you connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, TikTok, YouTube. Make sure you subscribe over there and, you know, like the videos. And if you'd like to support this podcast in another way, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash ink to film. And right now we are going to be running a poll on there. Um, I yeah, today, as of recording this tomorrow, I'm going to be putting up the final four. And um, so I can't announce them just yet because I don't know what they are yet, but I will be announcing them soon. Final four on TV show suggestions for our next project. After we finish Lathe of Heaven, we will be tackling a TV show adaptation, which is something that we do every now and then, um, but we tend to be a little more choosy with them. But we're finally putting one of those up for community suggestions. Ah, And we'd love to hear from you. And the way that you get to vote on that poll is become a patron and you get access to tons of bonus material, um, uh, which includes alternate adaptations, things like that. We just put one out actually today on the new D&D movie, D&D Honor Among Thieves, um, which was a lot of fun talking about that. And we put that out as a bonus episode because it's a little bit outside of our normal scope. It's about a game that's been adapted, but a lot of fun. So if you want, if that sounds interesting to you, we'd love to have you on Patreon. Yeah, that was a really fun episode. I, I had a lot of fun editing that one. A lot of good <laughs>, laughs and just, you know, it was fun to talk about D&D. Absolutely. Thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, man. Uh, all we got left to do next week is to tackle the movie. Uh, I, I'm so curious to watch this thing. I know there is this new version. Maybe that'll be a potential bonus episode we could do one day. Um, but I, I think this original, this first attempt at it is going to be interesting to look at because you have nowhere to go, right? The second attempt, you can look at this first movie and be inspired and do something with it, right? Like engage with it. But here it's like they're coming in cold. They just got the book and they're trying to figure out a way to adapt this thing. I'm just going to be curious to see what they tried and whether it yeah. worked or not. 
it should be interesting. Yeah, I'm looking forward to checking it out. And, you know, everything that I watch, I get something from, whether I love it or hate it or, you know, something in between. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, enjoy the experience of analyzing it for the podcast. All right. Until next time, keep adapting. <laughs>